Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, super excited about today's interview. So we did an interview with former CEO, now chairman, and co-founder of Intercom. And if you run a SaaS company uh, or you know, you're involved in, in the building of one, you've likely heard of Intercom and you're probably a user of Intercom. And so what Intercom allows business to do is communicate with their customers, prospective or current, basically through their application. And so it's a messaging app. Uh, you know, think about Slack, uh, but for your customers. And, you know, when we were coming up, they were one of the companies we really looked at and admired because they seemed to be a really product-focused company that was scaling incredibly fast. And so, you know, they founded their company about 10 years ago. They've raised from some of the most notable angels in the Valley. And the chairman, Owen McCabe, who we spoke with, details the company's journey, you know, how he got to start and where the company is. And I learned a tremendous amount from Owen. So uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, hope you guys enjoy. And as always, send me feedback if you have any. All right, Owen. So for the audience, uh, could you tell us where you grew up, You know what your background is, uh, how did you get interested in technology entrepreneurship? Basically, you know, your story. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in Dublin, Ireland, where I am right now. Uh, although I spent the last 10 years in the Valley, which we can get to if you want, just got back. And, um, you know, I grew up watching TV shows about the future. There was one Australian show and one UK, one was called Tomorrow's World, one was called Beyond 2000. It's all about the bright and beautiful future. Um, flying cars. And I remember an episode where they they talked about the future of nutrition and food and you just have to take these tablets and that would be all you'd need, et cetera. It was, you know, it was, it was wild and weird and kooky, but it, it, it really ignited my imagination. And um, they celebrated inventors and scientists and technologists. And a lot of these inventors, uh, they were scientists and they would be interviewed and kind of nerdy lab coats and they had cool goggles and uh, little pocket protectors and uh, in their labs and all their machinery. And I just thought that was so cool. So amazingly cool. Uh, God knows why. So I decided I want to be a, a scientist and, and uh, you know, we tell these stories about ourselves and our stories. Who, who knows if it's nearly as simple as that? I sincerely doubt it, but that's the narrative <laughs> I'll share today. But um, I, uh, I, I, I just had it in my head that I wanted to be a scientist and, 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 uh, you know, I studied just, you know, the topic of science before I got to really study it in school. And then some of my favorite subjects in school were chemistry and physics and mathematics and all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had that one little thing in my head. And when I did work experience, when I was 16 or younger, I, um, I went to like local chemical production companies um, and, you know, was let out amongst the factory in all these conditions that probably you wouldn't let kids run around in these days. But <laughs> I was, yeah, it was pretty funny. I, I worked in uh, the quality control department for two weeks in a company whose name I really shouldn't say and won't. But, you know, they let me perform all sorts of tests that went into the quality control logbook in their chemical production processes. Anyway, that was my little foray into actually being a scientist. And I did get to wear a lab coat for 14 days. 
That's um, sweet. How old are, I mean, <laughs> that, like that as a, as a child, like you're so into sort of markers oh and significance God. like that, yes. lab coats. Even So I was obsessed with like beepers. I wanted a beeper. Uh-huh. I a, oh, yeah, yeah. I had an Qualcomm, and I was yeah. always like, dude, he's so important because he had a beeper. Yeah. You know, oh, it's I just something it. so cool about it for 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 <laughs> technologists and uh, engineers and nerds in general. When before mobile phones, the idea that someone could kind of like send a message to you and a little digital aspect that blew my mind. You and I both missed beepers, but yeah, that was crazy. That was fascinating. I, I remember trying to save up to get one of my mom. Was, <laughs> Who Absolutely. is gonna beep nobody? Exactly yeah. right. <laughs> That's exactly funny. right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I have a question for you. So, you know, um, you know, Peter Thiel, he, he talks about, we, we were, we were sort of promised one future and, you know, we wanted flying cars and now we have 140 characters. And so Uh that's, you know, so his fund is trying to, I guess, create or Mm -hmm. fund breakthrough technologies. Do you feel like that as pessimistic as him in terms of like the technology we have today? Or are you like, you know, we've done a lot of cool shit we're building awesome products, you know, as a civilization and we can do more like, you know, how, how sort of optimistic are you or, you know, um, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, as my, my nature is, is, is optimistic. I believe in the incredible uh, creative potential of the human race um, yeah. and of individuals. And I've had the great pleasure of getting to meet so many incredible, wonderful people in the technology industry it's true to say that so much of our precious energy has gone into making things like, you know, auto mailers for sales development reps. <laughs> uh, and they're happy about that though. They like that. Yeah, for sure. And, they, <laughs> and, 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 and they need assistance and help and that delivers efficiencies to the businesses who have these sales teams and those businesses deliver efficiencies if they're selling marketing products to marketing teams and those marketing teams uh, deliver efficiencies to the the process of selling whatever widgets or gadgets uh, that are sold by themselves in turn deliver efficiencies to their customers and they deliver efficiencies to consumers and the world becomes a better place so it's all part of the ecosystem but it is true to say that the 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 narrative i painted uh, from the the shows I watched as a kid when I decided I want to be a scientist um, and an inventor, um, you know, they, they thought differently about the future. And it's just, it's just, it's undeniable that just so much energy and effort is put into things that on the face of it are pretty damn rudimentary, not that inspiring, creative. They don't think that big and they don't very directly move the human race forward. There are a few notable examples, people like, Elon Musk, for example, right. uh, and he he he, you know, moves us forward. You know, maybe a hundred x. You know, yeah, uh, you know, hundred thousand x relative to a lot of a lot of the SaaS businesses that we all put our effort and energy into. So, you know, hard hard to disagree with the great man that is Peter Thiel. I just generally tend to agree with everything he has to say. I'm afraid, <laughs> um, but at, yet at the same time, I wouldn't describe myself as pessimistic. Only because yeah. I know it's possible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting that so you you would describe yourself as, as an inventor and a scientist uh-huh. first and uh-huh. an entrepreneur second. Is that is that right? Well, or? no, that was my story, really. I mean, I don't know what the hell I describe myself as now. But, <laughs> yeah, but like the to 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 try and summarize the remainder of that tale, which maybe I 
got a little sucked down into as I um, glazed over it, thinking about my sweet, sweet childhood. Um, the the remainder was that I then got into computers and you know got online in 1996, and my imagination was once again ignited, and and my mind was blown by what was possible and the people you could connect with and the potential for creativity. And I decided computers was what I wanted to do. And later on, then I discovered this course called Computer Science, and it seemed to have the two things I always dreamed I wanted. And I studied that course and got to learn, you know, how to create technology, all the while just dreaming of of, of self-realization and success. And, you know, I had idols, the likes of which we spoke about earlier on, 37 Signals, later Basecamp. They started great product businesses. So that was the primordial soup for what I do later, an interest in science and invention, but then computers and the internet. And then later, uh, a, a drive and a chip on my shoulder to prove myself, which all led into creating technology businesses. Awesome. Okay. So, um, you know, we are all businesses, I think, uh, and the SaaS world are grateful that you took that course and went on to found uh, Intercom. So, um, you know, we're a user, uh, customer of Intercom and very happy with Intercom. And so, you know, um, for the listeners, I'm sure, you know, everybody who listens to this knows what Intercom does, but, you know, uh, would love for you to summarize it in your own words. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a simple way to replace a lot of the complex and junky, spammy, crappy tools of old for <laughs> internet businesses to connect with their customers um, in a way that their customers want and enjoy uh, and ultimately gives them a, a rich personal experience. We saw email and email marketing products and live chat and everything else as being the opposite of that. Uh, and you know, some of our innovations, whether it was you know, a messenger on your side or simple bots to kind of grease the wheels and create some automation and um, make it easier for end consumers to get what they want and for for businesses to spend their time uh, appropriately. That uh, really did change things. And you can see, you know, many big public companies now building things that are competitive to Intercom along with many other startups too. So it's, it, it, it's that's what it was. And it's been a pretty cool ride to get to see that firsthand. Cool. Awesome. Um, so, you know, Intercom is valued, you know, well over a billion dollars today. And by the way, so listeners, you guys need to watch uh, an interview Owen did on CNBC uh, because it's a masterclass on if you make it to that level with your business, how to conduct yourself at that scale. You answer those <laughs> questions amazingly. I mean, just, I mean, very sophisticatedly. And they asked you a question. It was like, are you scared that you guys raised it a billion dollar valuation, which is a ridiculous question. I mean, I, you know, I, it's ridiculous, but anyway, um, when you started the business, like what, what was your initial goal? Uh, what, you know, was it a financial goal? Um, you know, did you see a market problem that you just needed to address? Was it like, uh, you know, you wanted to make a bunch of money so you could have a philanthropic impact? Um, like how, why, why did you start the business other than, hey, it's cool, I want to build this product? Yeah, well, you know, much like we do tend to tell little narratives about um, our, our past in grossly simplified ways, the likes of which I just shared with you, I do think we tend to think <laughs> about the potential for our future in very simple ways too. We, do, we talk about goals, but I, I, I really doubt most of us have very well verbalized and, and, and considered 
thoughts about exactly what we want to achieve. And, and for what it's worth, I, I, I think it's a little unhealthy because you're just not in control of all the variables. Who knows what the future may bring? You know, true happiness comes from riding the waves of, 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 of all of the surprises and the magic that, that, that comes forth rather than being stuck and fixed to some sort of outcome. That's a long way away to say that I don't really have an answer to that question other than I knew I wanted to prove myself. I had a big chip in my shoulder. I wanted something less than respect, love, and validation from the world. Um, and I thought I could get that by, um, you know, demonstrating that I was smart and being successful. Um, was money attractive, the idea, idea of money? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, was, was fame and notoriety? Yes, I mentioned that. I think a big part of it was also uh, trying to find a vehicle to uh, exercise my what, what I thought were my skills and talents. I, I believed in my ability to, to create and invent and make cool things that people wanted, but also construct businesses and lead teams and brand things and whatnot. So, so the, all, all of those things came to bear. But um, you know, Intercom, like most businesses, I think, um, just got started uh, with those general ideas and and uh, you know as technologists we we were just excited to build something really cool and you know we thought we could do better than what was out there a lot of the time a lot of this invention comes from um a distaste with what's on the market or what's in the world you know sometimes it can be a little unhealthy sometimes it can be a little arrogant sometimes there can be negative components up to it but you look at what's out there and you're like ah this sucks this isn't good enough. Like we can do better. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know if you have to have that to get started, but it, it, these are, this is the type of energy that has people do the crazy things that, that they did in the beginning. So uh, again, I think that that's what led into it. Did we dream, like you say, um, becoming a billion dollar business? I don't think we specifically dreamed of that. Of course, if you asked anyone at the start, Hey, would you like that? They'd say, um, sure. Um, I will <laughs> say that, um, a couple of days after we actually incorporated the company, I, I had moved over to San Francisco. My co-founders who were still in Ireland came over to visit and uh, we signed all the paperwork and we had yet to raise any money. Um, so it was a scary time and, you know, there was a leap of faith required. There was like no income, mm. you know, it, it wasn't particularly comfortable. And, and, and so to try and inspire the, the other guys to kind of stick with this thing that was nothing at that point for the next few months as I try to raise you know a tiny bit of money I told them like hey I genuinely believe that in two years this thing can be worth 50 million dollars that was mm. that was the biggest number I could think of maybe I said <laughs> three years I can't I can't remember what the time frame was exactly but I I I did have some sense that like we we're smart we can you know there's, there's lots that's possible and I, I saw some of the other companies out there i remember heroku had sold for 200 and something million dollars and that was almost the biggest number i'd ever heard of uh, at that stage in a funny way so when they sold at that price and then i got to meet the guys and understand who they were i i, I figured hey we could probably do like a quarter of that um in my head so yeah i remember saying i think we can be worth 50 million dollars so that puts a bit of perspective on it too that i certainly wasn't deeply believing that we have a multi-billion dollar thing in our hands because we had nothing on our hands yeah i mean 
I mean, back then, I think that was what, like early, I don't know, 2012, yeah, 2011. 2011. Yeah. 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 I mean, 200 million was a, I mean, it still is a huge number, but that was a, like that, that was a lot of money back then. I mean, now with it the was. amount of venture funding in the, in the, in the space, it's, you know, I don't know if prices are, keep going up, but that was a huge number. So yeah. No, it really totally. was. Yeah. 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 So was, you know, let me ask you, so like, was, um, you know, so many, I mean, so many impressive businesses and business people, technologists have sort of come out of Ireland, like in terms of Stripe and that whole mm. legacy and, and the whole ecosystem that, that they've created. Did you, did you benefit from that at all? Or were you like, you know, like, that's cool. We're going to do this. Um, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. Plus Irishmen, Irish women seem <laughs> to have a, have this, I don't know if the right word is bravado. Don't take offense to that, but the swagger, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, I'm, a huge I, I, of, I'm a huge fan of MMA and, you know, I trained uh -huh. jiu-jitsu. Well, and, um, he's, a, he's an exception. He's an unusual <laughs> man, but not so unusual yeah. in the sense of like, I don't know, like you guys are like that. I mean, don't take offense. I'm just a very no, broad I can't, no, I won't, no, I won't, I won't, I won't take offense, but I will tell you what we actually are like. Yeah. Uh, if you, okay. if you want to hear yes. it from the Irish man in Ireland. No, no, um, I want to stick with my stereotype. That's totally unfounded based on three data points. I would like to do that. <laughs> well, you're welcome to do that too. That's how it works these days. Uh, you just decide whatever you want. But I think, you know, so tiny bit of history. Ireland suffered until the 1920s or so, about 600 years of oppression uh, yeah. uh, under the British. Um, you know, people say 600, you know, there's kind of like 600 years of oppression is kind of like a catchphrase here, but someday I'll have to actually have to look up the history myself and figure out what the, what the actual numbers are. But yep. it was big and it was long and it was painful. And, um, you know, we have just long been the underdogs, um, a small nation next to a bigger one, like Canada next to the United States, perhaps there's a certain humility that comes with that. You know, the United States and the United Kingdom, as part of their culture, just have a very high degree of confidence uh, in their greatness. Um, and Ireland and Irish people actually never had that. So I think one of the big benefits um, uh, when it comes to business and global business is that Irish people tend to be pretty affable and inoffensive, you know, mm. and that in itself could be taken uh, in the wrong way. I, I don't know how how much other Irish people might like to hear that, but it, it, it means that people like that are both underrated, but also can connect with uh, a lot of people. All of that said, however, there's a certain type of individual that comes from a, a humble culture that actually wants to shake that off, that actually wants to say, no, screw that. You know, we're as great and capable as anyone else. And uh, that's the type of dynamic that, that, that can create a chip on, on one's shoulder. And people, some of them overcompensate, you know, the MMA fighter that we haven't named, that we don't need to, could be one example of that. Um, but you might've seen other people in technology too. I, the Irish people I've seen in technology actually have been, have been understated and quietly confident. I think um, I, I actually, when I moved to the United States, wanted to compete on the basis of my own skills. So I, I didn't get, get out there and try to connect with the whole Irish community. In, in in the latter years, I was I was happy to be able to use some Dublin slang with people who knew it. But in the early days, I just wanted to be me, not Irish, not any particular label. 
Um, but I'll tell you the one benefit we had was that we kept our R&D offices in Dublin, Ireland. And so we were the first Valley company that was, you know, venture backed and super high growth, high potential, all of that stuff that built all their technology here. And so we got to benefit from being able to tap that talent that we would have had to fight so insanely aggressively for uh, in San Francisco and the Bay Area. So in that respect, we were one of the first, you know, distributed companies, even though we never really did remote stuff, but we were pretty globally distributed uh, from an R&D perspective. And that was a secret weapon for us. Mm, cool. Switching gears a little bit, mm-hmm. um, would like to kind of get into how you guys scaled Intercom. So, um, you know, maybe you kind of walk through, like, how did you guys get the initial uh, customer traction, you know, first 10 customers, how to go from 10 to a million, you know, in revenue, 1 million to 10 million, um, 10 million to 100 million, you know, you can kind of break down these arcs and sort of whatever framework that you have, but that, you know, that's how we tend to think about it. But I would love to kind of understand how you guys got the initial kind of fire started and, and kind of kept it scaling. Yeah. At the start, we kind of begged, borrowed and stole customers. And by that, I mean, you know, we just went to people we knew in the industry, friends, Mm. previous clients from our consulting business, anyone we knew and kind of asked them, would they please try this thing out? Mm. And I think there's a lesson in that, in that if you do not know people who could use your potential product, if there's not individuals in your phone book that you can't call or text and ask them to try the damn thing, you're working on the wrong product or service. I mean, you you know, I, I deeply believe that you're just making life particularly hard for yourself if you're, if you're not close to the potential market. So that's where all the initial customers came from. And, you know, we got a healthy 10, 20, 30, 40 customers just out of our own network. Mm. Um, and that was and is more than enough to... Uh, tweak the product and, uh, you know, run customer development with and figure out what people want and don't want and set you up for broader stage. So, so that was the first, that was the first set of customers. We didn't charge for a year or so. So who knows what the revenue would have been from them, but wow. we charged 50 bucks at the start. So if that was, you know, 30 customers, it was a teeny tiny amount of revenue. Right. Uh, uh, then over time we kind of launched, you know, I, I worked on the idea in December 2010, pitched it to the rest of the team. A couple of weeks after in December, we wrote our first line of code, first days of January 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we had people using it by March or April 2011. And then we launched it publicly in the summer of 2011. And then we used mostly content marketing to kind of just let the world know that we existed. My co-founder Des was and is a particularly brilliant writer uh, and storyteller, and so you know he would he would just write all manner of things, probably often about product development, which is kind of what we knew, which is what got us, you know, connected with tons of early stage businesses. But but the other the other side of that was that the product we made was just really really different. So we didn't need a sophisticated, considered, uh, measured. Um, acquisition strategy or channel or funnel as Mm -hmm. much as we made something that the world clearly found interesting 
And then we just made enough noise to let people know we existed and kind of magic happened after that. So that very cleanly brought us up to a million dollars in revenue, which we got to, you know, I think is close enough as after we launched, but we got to a million in revenue. I think it was probably two years after we started the business. Mm. We got to like 5 million after that, a year after that, and then 20 million the year after that. It ramped extremely fast. Uh, we, we, we went from one to 50 million in air or in three years. And the only other company we could find at that time that had done that before was Salesforce. Mm. Then later Slack did it and beat us. So that was really disappointing. And I was mad at Slack for a day. Um, <laughs> and then many other companies beat Slack, of course, Zoom and everyone else. I mean, we're in the crazy I've... days now. It's like, like you mentioned with the pricing around the acquisition of Heroku, just everything was simpler at that time. So, you know, if, if, if you want to think about the arcs from, you know, zero to one, one to 10, 10 to a hundred, you know, zero to one was really just begging people to use the thing and trying to figure out what are we building? Mm. You know, what, what one to 10 was, was really about getting the, the word out there as much as possible, but still just investing in the early stages of the product. We'd never done kind of any business at this scale before. So much of the story from all the way from one to 100 was very similar. We just did much of the same things, obsessing about product. Um, one of the things we never let go of, and that's true to this day, uh, even as we're in the 10th year of, of working on Intercom, is that we just believe in the power of innovation and in getting first to market and in reinventing the industry and ourselves. Uh, and that just built on the philosophy that you know, if you build it, they will come, which marketers and salespeople don't like to hear. Um, but it is true that if you have a brilliant product that's really unique in the world, customers and revenue and successful follow, that doesn't mean that you don't need go-to-market strategy to really accelerate that. Um, but what you saw change was eventually starting to optimize the things that just don't matter at the start. So optimizing pricing, and we reinvent the pricing a bunch of times, mostly to great success, sometimes we really pissed people off. We um, tuned our go-to-market model and we sent certain types of customers to sales teams. We kind of messed that up for many years and really didn't add a lot of value until the last few years. Mm. Um, we then just experimented with more conventional modes of marketing, really content marketing, word of mouth, did it all for, for the longest time. But we would hold events and they'd be very different types of events. We'd always try to break the rules. But eventually we got into advertising and you know, when you're at a sufficient scale, you can just hire people that have very high degree of competence in areas of expertise, uh, like mm. digital marketing. So we layered on a lot of digital marketing, but really that's just a smaller part of just organic and word of mouth. And then, you know, over time, you're just tweaking, whether it's sales compensation or incentives, um, right. how you package the product and deliver it to people. The, the biggest thing that changes over that period of time, and this is for a software business, um, it would work for any technology company, I think, that sees themselves as disruptive, that starts at the bottom of the market, selling to little customers like we did, and over time, selling to ever bigger businesses. The biggest thing that changes are factors that, um, that are influenced, like, for example, how you decide what to build. When you're building for the masses, you don't really land on any one of them uh, as a way to understand what they want and rather use your own intuition it requires your own artistry and opinion to figure out what they want 
you know, Steve Jobs famously said, Apple never had focus groups. And the way that they built their products, at least the first 10, 15 years, was based on what they believed the market wanted. And that was absolutely how we built for the first five years or so. But over time, as you're selling to bigger companies that have more specific and sophisticated needs, maybe sometimes they're bigger than you. And these are people that you're going to ask to sign annual contracts with and to pay up front. You're going to have to get close to them. And that's exactly what we did. We would start to use our sales and marketing teams, particularly our sales teams, to understand what did our potential customers want? What were they asking for on our sales calls and our demos? And when we had long lasting relationships with them and we, we put in place relationship managers to manage that, they'd then be responsible for learning like what does our customer base need? And it doesn't flip overnight. It's a long gradual thing and it's still happening and will happen for another decade. But slowly over time, you're less and less relying on your internal intuition and creativity and artistry and you're more focused on listening exactly to what the customer needs. That's the big change. I'll tell you one of the biggest things that people actually don't understand who tend to think about the arcs of these custom companies and the trajectories from one to 10 and 10 to 100 and beyond, et cetera, is that a lot does not change, that you can build very big businesses of hundreds of millions of dollars and really just stay focused on some of the core essential philosophies and principles. And there I say, the longer you can stay focused on them, the longer you'll stay kind of unique and special in the market. You know, the reason we, for example, can say attract brilliant product or design talent, and then continue to ship things ahead of the market and invent before anyone else is actually because we've stayed close to those ideals. And, you know, a lot of companies, I think when they get somewhat bigger, they start to shed that. They bring in very experienced individuals from much larger companies who have great skills that don't exist in your company, but just don't have the magic of the early folks that bring that creativity that make you special in the market. So while there is maturization and sophistication over time, um, for the really best companies, a lot of the magic and the things that makes them them does not change. Right. In my experience, you know, sort of really seasoned folks, they tend to make very safe decisions, uh, but, but safe decisions aren't always the things that move the needle, you know, right. things that move the right. needle are, are, are risky. Safe decisions are important later, but you know, they, it's, they it's are just, important later. It, it, it's just really what you're trying to optimize for when the yeah. real artistry is being able to blend the, the risk and the innovation and the creativity with the order and the structure and the consideration and safety as you get bigger. And that's difficult, but it's a fun and beautiful thing when it works. Yeah, that's a great point. So how how closely did you sort of own product and design engineering over the evolution of the company? Are you sort of a more product-focused CEO? Like, you know, where is your principal area of focus? I'm sure it's shifted, but, you know, if you yeah. have to say. Yeah, no, product is what gets me excited. And it's it's uh, it's one of the bigger areas of my expertise and, and, and unique ability. Um you know, product and engineering reported to me for the first, I don't know, something like six years. And then after that reported into my co-founder, Des, he reported to me, but I was very close to the product, mm. um, even into like the 10th year. Um, wow. It just depends on what value that you have to deliver. My particular interest and what I got excited about was uh, innovation and invention and making things that were very different and surprised people. You know, I loved to sweat the details. 
I, I had an, an eye uh, a taste for and an obsession with frankly perfection and high degree of quality and so you know I, I was very involved with you know the early stages of product strategy and setting our product strategy figuring out what we should build and, and, and what we are in the world and in the market and how to talk about what we are then I'd be very involved in the, the execution of how things would work and then later uh, in the process we'll be quite a, a bit involved in the actual details of that execution, you know, the, the, a lot of the smaller design principles. So I was very, very, very hands-on and I kind of set the standards for both how we think about product strategy, how product works, how it's executed, how it looks, how we deliver it, how we ship it and uh, talk about it. Um, so that was just my own inclination. You know, other CEOs have a, have a lot of go-to-market experience or, or, or focus on that. Others are more operationally inclined. I, w- I was the product person and I love that. Um, yeah. It's an interesting challenge to work over time at great scale. You know, we have nearly 700 people now and hundreds of engineers, um, you know, how to direct project and product and use those skills and talents at that great scale. And quite frankly, you really, you, you don't, you don't really want your CEO as intimately involved at, at that stage because it, it would be impossible for everyone to get uh, anything done. So it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting journey. Amen. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, so I mean, you were you were basically leading product and and engineering then up to what I mean, several hundred people. Yeah, yeah, you know? for sure. I mean, we had we had VPs of product and engineering who who did the hard work, but they reported to me, and I I, uh, I was intimately involved in what we did and built for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So you know, CEOs have a have a huge impact on culture, the sort of DNA of the company. Um, so, what are some sort of you know things that are unique to you? Like, if I were to ask your co-founders or let's say the people mm-hmm. that kind of work with you closely, what are some idiosyncrasies about you uh, that yeah. you've kind of injected into the business? Well, a lot of ways to answer that uh, question. Yeah. I think um, there was a core set of principles which I continue to live by today that um, I would used to both attract talent, um, to kind of train people as they came in, to give people feedback, to make decisions on our product, to make decisions on policy, how we ran the organization, mm. uh, and to help explain to the company decisions that we would make. And it's really important for a company that wants to you know, build a sustaining culture that differentiates itself from, from, from anyone else. It's really important to just use and talk about these things all the damn time. Um, off the top of my head, for me, you know, we've touched on some of them, perfection and just delivering brilliance, excellence at every point that mattered in our product and in our marketing, but also just the way we, you know, worked internally and ran our offices. I really would try and hold a high bar. One of our values we stated was our bar is higher. And that's pretty brutal and exhausting, you know, to work at a company that has such high standards. It's really, really, really difficult. It's, it's, it's a constant struggle and fight, but that was something I, I lived by and kind of ran the company by. Another was um, the idea that the best idea wins, that um, there was humility and uh, that there wasn't place for individual ego in the way in which we made decisions, you know, mm-hmm. Very rarely we made a mistake and hired someone who was political and really made sure that 
uh, it was their decision that would win the day or their team would get the kudos and created, you know, kind of us versus them dynamics in the companies. And there are cultures and organizations out there that are very political and like that. And I, I've never worked in those types of companies or ran a company that way. So I don't understand what the benefits are, but these are companies that are very, very successful. So I presume there are benefits. We didn't do it that way. <laughs> at Intercom, if you worked that way, you got fired actually. And, you know, there's probably only three people over the course of 10 years that I'm familiar with that I, I had a hand in, you know, saying, hey, we're just not going to be able to work together. Yeah. Um, and what that left was that whoever the, the, the best idea came from, give or take, it didn't really matter it was the idea that wins and so there was a high degree of intellectual honesty and it meant that mm. you know it was okay to like put out an idea that was a bad idea or wasn't the, the one that got picked or we and, and and you then have to rationalize everything you know in a political environment if the idea that gets chosen is the one that is shouted the loudest or comes from the strongest person you don't have to explain why that idea is a good idea um, that's not the determining factor. But in a world where the best idea wins, there has to be a lot of rationalization, a lot of conversation. And, and that, was the, that was the environment that I liked. Uh, I always advocated for um, creativity and innovation. Let's do things differently. You know, I just looked around the industry and just found everyone to be really samey, really similar, not that inspiring. And, and then we had that degree of arrogance that I referred to earlier, which is that like, hey, we can we we can just do better than, than than what we see. We look around and respectfully say like, this isn't good enough. Um, we also had a degree of kindness where we said, hey, we're going to treat each other with like this, an essential amount of kindness and respect. You know, I always found it icky when I heard CEOs and founders talk about their companies as family. I was like, Ugh, I don't. You know, and I don't. I, mean, I shouldn't actually say that. I mean, that that's uh, no. You're you're right well, though. You don't. Well, fire whatever you want to do. Well, that's a that's a good way to put it, right? Now we weren't as cutthroat as say you, apparently um, Netflix culture is. Yeah. But the the family thing was icky to me, but at the same time, you know, it was really important to respect the human and the person and the individual, and I think that that allowed for a very high degree of connection. You know, the, the, the people at Intercom, especially from the early days, are so, so close. We made yeah. lifelong friends. And that went a really long way. I think the fun and play was so important. You know, one of the things I, I repeated the most because I knew that I wasn't able to live by it, but that it was important anyway, was to enjoy the journey. Like to not focus on the outcome, which I've met, spoken about a little earlier, mm. um, to just embrace the adventure and have fun with it. And, you know, create space for silliness and play and fun so that um, people could actually um, feel safe to actually try new ideas and new things and really express themselves and be themselves, too. Um, and that that has great benefits just for the feel of the culture where people don't feel contained and and judged and actually they feel welcome and they're able to enjoy themselves. But it's really it's a really brilliant, beautiful thing for the work product also. When it's safe to do really dumb and silly things, you have some really dumb and silly and weird and wonderful and wacky and highly disruptive and effective uh, marketing or product ideas and features. Um, and so play and fun was a big part of my value system that I promoted to. Awesome. Well, Owen, you know, I mean, the world is uh, significantly better off for, you know, having you and your team sort of in, inventing and scaling intercom. So. Really appreciate you joining us today and for sharing your story. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Hey, 
Thanks for checking out the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the hiring platform companies use to find the best talent in software development. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or work with us, head over to gun.io to get in touch. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.